0: You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we continue the study of this letter that changed the world. John Bucama tells a story about moving from one state to another, and I, I love the way it just sets the tone for what we're going to study today. Uh, he made a move, went to the Department of Motor Vehicles to renew a license or something, and they said, we can't do that, there's something on your record. And they began to do some research. He said he made five long-distance phone calls, To the former state he lived in, and found out that they'd put a hold on all his records because ten years earlier he failed to pay a two dollar excise tax. So they calculated it up, and within ten years it had had amounted up about three hundred dollars. So in order to register his new his license in the new state, he had to pay this fee on a car that he hadn't owned in a while, just so he could get in. And this is what he said about that—that's so appropriate. He said it wasn't so much the money that bothered me; it was knowing that I was guilty on the wrong side of the law for all those years without even being aware of it. We're going to read about the Jews today, and I think that applies to them. They thought they were okay, and Paul begins to let them know that they've really been on the wrong side all these years. Look with me at chapter 2. We'll look at the first five verses to begin with. Therefore, if any of you who judges without excuse, who judges is without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you... The judge do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Let's stop right there. We want to begin by looking at the attitude of the unbelieving Jew. Remember in chapter 1, Paul wrote about the Gentiles who were without excuse. They were unbelievers. They didn't believe because because God had revealed himself to them through nature, yet they still chose to reject him. And all during that time, I'm sure the Jews who would be reading that or listening to Paul re- reading a Paul's letter would say, "Yeah, that's right. They're bad. They're without excuse." And then Paul opens up in verse one there and says, "Those of you Jews implied here who are looking at them and judging them, you too are without excuse." So let's look at this attitude of these unbelieving Jews. First of all, they felt they were exempt from God's judgment. They felt that they were exempt from judgment. He says you're without excuse in verse one. And then in verse three, do you really think, and the great, if he starts it that way, what's he gonna say? Do you really think that you who judge and do those things are gonna escape God's judgment? They thought they were exempt from the judgment of God because they probably would say they weren't as wicked as the Gentiles. Maybe, remember we looked at that list of sins in chapter one and thought those aren't a part of our culture, so we're, we're God's not gonna judge us Paul says in chapter 2, you are, without, a, without, uh, without excuse, you too are guilty of judgment. So they thought they were exempt. I thought about the passage in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is teaching about judgment and being judgmental. And he, he says, if you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye, you're guilty. And it, you have, I have this mental picture of a, of a person with saw, a speck of sawdust in their eye. And and you're trying to tell them, you got this speck of sawdust in your eye, and you got a two-by-four sticking in yours. That's really the picture there. And it's like, hello, do you not see this? You're pointing out this little thing in somebody else's life, and you have this giant beam sticking in your eye. That's where the Jews were. They were, they were thinking uh, they could pick on the Gentiles, but God is saying to them, no, there's some accountability here. So they were not exempt. So let's look at this. I've got a couple of... Uh, bullet points here, points of application. That's what we're doing as we go through this study. The first one is this. To condemn others while excusing myself is sin. Just bringing it home. that Paul has a word for the Jews there, but this is for us, all right? Application for us to condemn others while while excusing myself is sin. Peterson translates in the message, he says, pointing your finger at others won't distract God. He's still gonna see you. He's still gonna know When I was a a new Christian, the preachers were always pointing like this. They'd go like that all the time. And every once in a while, they'd they'd say something, and they'd say, by the way, when I'm pointing one finger at you, I've got three pointing back at myself. I like that. Paul is saying this, you're busy pointing one finger at the Gentiles. You're showing them what they've done wrong. You've got three fingers pointing back at yourself. There's a, a greater accountability here. Peterson says, God doesn't see through, or God sees through your smoke screens. You can't can't blame others, and hopefully, God won't pay any attention to you. Second point of application is this God's mercy is not a license to sin, but an incentive to repent. God's mercy is not a license to sin, but an incentive to repent. When he mentions in verse 4 there that he says to them, You're despising the riches of his kindness. God's kindness, his restraint, and patience. Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Lead them to repentance. God's mercy is not a license to sin, but an incentive to repent. Peterson says, again, in the message translation, God is kind, but he's not soft. I I can't say, since God hasn't brought consequences in my life, that that means everything's okay and, and and I have to understand that what God is doing is He's waiting me, waiting for me to come to Him in faith and trust Him. Now that's for the unbeliever. God was patient with the unbelieving Gentiles. God was patient with unbelieving Jews, but it's not a license to sin, it's to call people to repentance. So, number one, they felt like they were exempt from judgment. Secondly, they treated God's mercy with contempt. With contempt. Again, in verse 4, there, despising the riches of his kindness. Having contempt, some translations say, for God's kindness and his patience and restraint. Point of application here, it's easy to mistake God's patience for his approval. This goes along with what I said a moment ago about license and sin, but sometimes we do that. We think, well, I I profess to know Christ and I'm walking with him and I'm, I'm out of bounds a little bit, but nothing's happened. God seems to be okay with that. Just because I think he is doesn't mean he is. Just because God's waiting for me to repent doesn't mean that he's not going to judge my sin. He's going to discipline me, the consequences of my sin. Don't take God's mercy for granted. Christian, you cannot walk through the Christian life and have this flippant attitude about sin. It's just not healthy. They, were exempt, they thought they were exempt from God's judgment. They treated his mercy with contempt. The third thing, they hardened their hearts. The unbelieving Jews were hardening their hearts. Look at verse 5. Because of your hardness and unrepentant heart. Well, those are strong words. God said, Paul says to them, Your hearts are hard and unrepentant. What a picture. They were self-righteous. Think about the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus had many things to say to them. I, the, the story in Luke chapter. 18. He tells a parable of a self-righteous Pharisee. And that self-righteous Pharisee stands up and looks to heaven and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy or unrighteous or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. I thank God I'm not as bad as they are. Do you hear that? I thank God that I'm okay the end of that passage, he says, you're guilty. The truth here, self-righteous people are not exempt from judgment. Just because a Pharisee says, I, I thank God that I, at this place, I'm not exempt from the judgment of God. Someone said self-righteous religion is as much a rejection of God as self-centered paganism. Now, chapter 1 is about self-centered paganism, they were rejecting God, remember? They are without excuse and they chose to reject God and God turned them over to this debased lifestyle. Remember that? They rejected God because they were self-centered. It was all about them. It was all about putting themselves in, in the place of God. But well, look at what Paul says to the Jews here. He's saying, you're not self-centered rejecting God. You're self-righteous rejecting God. You think you've got it all together. You think you're special. Be careful about that. Someone entitled a message on this passage, Religious People Need Jesus Too. Religion doesn't save. Only Christ saves. Let me share this next bullet with you, bullet point, and I'll have to explain it, I'm sure. I've tried multiple times to reword this, but this is, it is what it is, okay? Don't be more amazed at God's patience with others than you are humbled by God's patience with you. Say that again. Don't be more amazed at God's patience with others than you are humbled by God's patience with you. I should not be overwhelmed and amazed that God has withheld judgment or his punishment or consequences on another person's life because they're so bad. I should be more humbled and completely in awe that God would have patience with me. See the difference? Some of us sometimes, we say, why doesn't God straighten them out? Why doesn't God get a hold of them? Why doesn't God change them? Why why are things going all right in their life and they're so sinful? Why is God waiting on them? Why is God patient? Instead, oh God, why are you so patient with me? I thought about the story in Luke chapter 15. We, We call it the story of the prodigal son. Whenever I teach it, I call it the story of the loving father. Remember the story? The younger son... Takes the father's inheritance even before the father dies. What a slap in the face of the father. I'm not going to wait for you to die. I want it all right now. He gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he wastes it on wicked living. Gets to the bottom, gets to the pit, has nothing. Goes running back to his father and he says, when he comes back, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And what's the father doing? He's waiting to embrace him. He runs to him and throws his arms around him and welcomes him back. And that's a powerful story about repentance and restoration. It's a powerful story about the love of the father. But then the story unfolds as as the older son hears the celebration. See, here's what the father says to the younger son. Put a ring on his finger, a robe on him. Let's let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a celebration. So there's parties going on. And the older son, who was the good son, because he stayed with his dad, says to his servant, what's all this noise going on out there? And the servant says, oh, your, your brother was lost, and now he's been found, and the father's rejoicing. Let's go celebrate. The Bible says in verse 28 of Luke 15, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. Now, look at this picture here. God has done a miraculous work of healing and restoration in the life of the younger brother, but the older brother can't see it because it's all about him. It's all about Him. Sometimes we make church all about us and our preferences, and it's not to be. We're to celebrate when God does a work in somebody else's life. I've watched over the years of 30-plus years of ministry where someone in a church, their, their children get into trouble. Maybe the child, their child gets into drugs or alcohol or maybe they get in trouble with the law or maybe the child becomes pregnant and others in the church they don't point at them but you just know they're, they're saying shame on them. Why doesn't God do something there? We have this attitude and God forgives them and we almost get angry with God for forgiving and restoring those people. And then I've watched in those same families who are critical of others it hits their family. And now suddenly it's not them, it's us. Now suddenly this, this trauma has hit our family. And it's amazing how much more gracious we are with ourselves than we are with others. I try to be pastor of everybody. When the first one falls and I want to just be there to love them and let them know God loves them too. And when the, the next one falls, I, I'm, I, I'm to do the same. But we have a tendency of, of being like those church members who look down on others because things aren't going well with their family or Somebody has made a wrong decision. We should be amazed and in awe that God would forgive us. What did Paul say who wrote this? That he was the chief of sinners? He knew what that meant to be in awe of God's grace. So that's the attitude of these unbelieving Jews. Number two, we're going to look at some important aspects of that judgment. Verses 6 through 12. He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth but are obeying unrighteousness, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. There is no favoritism with God. All those who sin without the law will also perish without the law. All those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Let's try to unpack the truths of this passage right here. By the way, uh, very much debated among scholars. Good conservative evangelical scholars disagree with what Paul is getting at here. So I'm going to do my best just to, to lay down some, some things that I think are clear truths. First of all, this judgment of God is based on the truth, God's judgment is based on truth. It's implied in what I just read you in 6 through 12, but it's stated clearly in verse 2. He says in verse 2, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. God's judgment is based on truth. Thank God for that. Thank God that His standard is right and holy and unwavering. Thank God that that He has this standard of righteousness to put out there. Here's my truth to take home when we measure ourselves by our own standards, we will get it wrong. Did you know that? God's standard is truth. That's how he measures right and wrong. It's based on truth. I was uh, baffled when I first was invited to serve on a jury, and they told me it's not about, it's not about right and wrong. It's about legality and illegality. And I'm, I said, well, that's wrong. Well, it's legal. So uh, I, the world needs to understand God's judgment is based on truth. That's, that's, his, that's his standard. I read about a little boy, little guy, took a stick and held it up to himself and put six marks on that stick, pretty well equal marks, and then he walked around and told him about it. he said, I'm six foot tall, look. Look, the stick says it right there. He, he just measured himself. Didn't make him any taller. We have a tendency to do that. I can find somebody who's not living up to truth less than me until I can make myself feel good about myself. At least I'm not doing what they're doing. You ever do that? I never say that out loud, Pastor, but we say it in our hearts, don't we? We feel good about ourselves because we haven't done what they did. Judgment is based on truth. Secondly, it, God's judgment is universal. Universal. Verse 6 says that each, will, each one will be repaid, each one or everyone according to his works. You look at verse 12 all those who sin without the law perish without the law. All those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It's universal. Jew, a Gentile and Jew, Paul says. By the way, chapter one, he says the Gentile world is is guilty without excuse. Chapter two, he says the Jewish world is guilty without excuse. And chapter three, or the next part we're going to look at, he's going to say everybody's guilty. Everyone is guilty. God's judgment is universal. Thirdly, it is based on our obedience or our disobedience, not our position. Listen carefully to this one. God's judgment is based on my obedience or disobedience, not on my position. He's saying to the Jews, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you get a free ticket. Look at verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Now some have taken that to say, this teaches salvation by works. We know Ephesians chapter 2, 8 9, by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So we know that that he can't be saying that here. By the way, you always want to take a, if you're reading through Scripture and something jumps out at you and says, that, that's not what I thought that meant, use other Scripture to help you interpret that Scripture. Take clearer Scriptures to help you interpret something that may not be clear. So I believe that's a, that's a wrong view of this passage to think he's teaching salvation by works. What he's saying is, um, and I believe this, he's, he's saying each one will be judged according to what he's done with Christ. What he's done with the amount of, of truth, the amount of light that he's been given. See, those who are disobedient... Those who disobey the truth, those are the people who reject Christ. Those who obey the truth, those are the people who accept Christ. So what he's saying here, I believe, is that judgment is going to be based on whether you've received Christ or rejected Christ. Someone said mankind can be divided into two groups. Those who receive him and those who reject him. That's how our judgment is based. A couple of truths here for us. A lack of concern for sin is incompatible with the Christian faith, with genuine faith. A lack of, of concern for sin is incompatible with a genuine faith in Christ. Incompatible. As Paul talks about disobedience here and he paints this picture in chapter 1 and then, and then gives some more illustrations of that and statements of that in this part of chapter 2 here. He, he's saying clearly that sin is, is going to be evidence in a person's life that they need a savior. If a person lives a life of habitual sin, the question has to be, did that person ever trust Christ as Savior? People say to me all the time, I hear it all through the years, Pastor, what about so-and-so? They walked an aisle in that church. They were baptized. They said they were saved. Yet they're living a total life of disobedience and, and rejection of God. Then I will have to say, well, I can't judge a man's heart. I don't know, and they know their heart. But their lifestyle is giving evidence that they never trusted him at all. See, we, we, we believe, I believe in once saved, always saved. But I think in a better way of stating that is if saved, always saved. If a person's commitment is genuine, I believe there will be a transformed life. If you walked an aisle or were baptized or prayed a prayer and your life didn't change, let me ask you this. What was the point? So you could be a church member. It sure isn't to get you in heaven because if you didn't change, you haven't been transformed like the song we just sang. God has not changed you. You need to ask that question. Have I really, by faith, come to trust Christ as my Savior? Let me say a word to believers about this sin being incompatible with the Christian life with a genuine faith. Um, be careful about allowing sin to creep into your life. Wayne Cordero, I love the story he tells about an African village that they wanted to hunt some ducks who were on the river. So they, every time they approached them, the ducks would scatter away. So somebody had an idea to take a pumpkin, and they'd go upstream and send that pumpkin down streamed toward the ducks were and of course the first time the pumpkin floated up the ducks scattered and then the couple would come back and the next day they did the same thing and the ducks scattered by the third or fourth time they did this some of the ducks left but some stayed pretty soon they sent that pumpkin floating into the midst of the ducks so many times that the ducks became comfortable with the pumpkin they just let the pumpkin in their midst there so here's what the villagers did when that happened they went and got other pumpkins and hauled them out put them on their heads and swam into the midst of those ducks and harvested them one at a time, just took them right out of the water. And and there's a picture there that when you allow and become comfortable with something, the enemy can hide something very deadly. Be careful, Christ follower. If you're looking at sin with a flippant attitude, it's really incompatible with your faith. You can't ignore sin and live a lifestyle as if Christ didn't change your life. Second truth I've got here, God, uh, good deeds should be a grateful response to what God has done, not a prerequisite for his favor. My, And as Paul talks of these who do good in this passage of Scripture, I just wanted to underscore, doing good as a Christ follower, if you know Christ as Savior, the good deeds that you do is not for you to gain more approval. You cannot do anything to gain any more of God's approval than he's already given his approval when you trusted Christ. When you try to earn more love, you just can't because he's already demonstrated his love for you. Can you get any better than that? Romans 5, 8. I can't wait to get to chapter 5. God demonstrated his love in this while we were still sinners. Christ, what? Died for us. He's demonstrated all his love. You can't make him love you anymore. So your activity of worship and and living a life of obedience needs to be a response to, to God's grace. Being thankful I love what Curtis Vaughn says. He says, God asks nothing from the sinner but to receive free grace at the time of conversion. But from that moment, the believer enters the whole into a wholly new responsibility. God demands from him, as the recipient of grace, the fruit of his grace. God's judgment is based on truth. It's universal. It's not based on our position, but what we do with Christ. And lastly, it, it's always just. God's judgment is always just. He's always fair, always right. Isn't that great to know that God's judgment is always just, always fair? Time Magazine carried a story about five or six years ago of some guys who wanted to do research about judges to see how biased they were. And they, they got a group of eight judges with about 22 years of experience, the average of all of them. They even looked at 1,100 parole board hearings with these judges over 10 months They came up with an overwhelming conclusion after doing this research that those judges, there were certain times of day that they gave favorable rulings and certain times of day where they didn't grant parole. So they started looking, and they found this out. Right after breakfast, the odds were very high that you're going to get paroled. Then the odds go down as you go through the day. Then you have mid-morning snack break. The odds went up again. Then they go down again. Then after lunch, guess what happened? The odds went up again. Here's what they concluded. Judges, during different times of the day, for whatever reason, are going to give different rulings. So just keep that in mind if you ever have to have a ruling. Make sure it's right after breakfast. But isn't it great that God's not like that? I don't have to worry about him being impartial. I know that he's going to be always right and fair. Let's look just quickly at these different types of people. Again, we're, a lot of what Paul says in this passage, he's repeating in a different way. But different types of people, there, there are different outcomes. And by different types of people, I'm just talking about righteous and unrighteous. Different outcomes or different rewards. Verse 8 and 9, he speaks of those who are unrighteous. He says those who are unrighteous, who disobey the truth, they will receive God's wrath. We looked at that in chapter 1 already. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment. You can read about it where the, 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 the dead are before him, and those are people who have rejected Christ, and he says, basically, depart from me. They're cast in the lake of fire. Unrighteousness will receive the wrath of God. The righteous, let her be, receive glory, honor, and peace. He mentions it through this passage. And righteous isn't righteous in and of ourselves. It's those who've accepted Christ and his offer of salvation and have the righteousness of Christ imparted to us, imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we believers will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the tribunal of Christ, the Bema, where there will be rewards given on the basis of our life in Christ. Our sin isn't judged there. You know where your sin was judged? The cross. At the cross. Praise the Lord for that. Number four, the standard of judgment. Look at verse 12 with me. We'll read verse 12 again through verse 16. The standard of God's judgment. All those who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but doers of the law will be declared righteous. Sounds like James, doesn't it? Doers, not just hearers. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the, the law is written on their hearts, by the way, I don't believe this is the same as the law being written on a believer's heart. It's a little different here, even though the phrase is similar. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Here's judgment. First of all, for the Jew, the one with the law. He says that the last part of verse 12, those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The Jews have the law. They have this standard. We studied some of that in connection class this morning, looking at some of the, the offerings that the, the, the uh, Old Testament uh, followers of God brought to him. That There's the, the law. The Jews have a, a better, clearer picture of God's ex- expectations. They'll be held accountable for that. For the Gentile, it's the first part of verse 15 there. Those who have the law or do not have the law, um, it's written on their hearts their conscience is the way they will be judged. For the Gentile, without the law, conscience. Isn't that interesting? That God has put in every person the understanding of right and wrong? It's there. It's built in everybody's, everybody's uh, psyche. It's who they are. They, they, you can't escape that. Every culture has an understanding of right and wrong. There's law. There's, there's moral truth that's there. In every culture, God puts that in our heart, and He here calls it Paul calls it our conscience. To go against that is to sin. Last truth, we are all responsible for the amount of light we have. We are all responsible for the amount of light we have. That's what Paul's saying here. The Gentile, if they through nature, their conscience, the Jew, through the law, the special privilege that God had, his patience with them, all of that makes us without excuse. So this last bullet point is just to sum up what all of this says that I think is important for us today as we get ready to leave. When we praise God for His mercy, while living in sin, we condemn ourselves. When we praise God for His mercy, yet we're living in sin, we condemn ourselves. Paul writes in here of those who celebrate the grace of God yet there's sin in their life. I think about coming to worship on Sunday morning and praising God with our voices and raising our hands and celebrating all that, yet living a life of sin, whether it's immorality or whether it's an attitude or whether it's a a habit that's inappropriate, we're condemning ourselves. Paul is paving the way in these passages to talk about the grace of God I love the story about a man from England, very wealthy man, who came to America for his holiday. That's the way they say vacation over there, holiday. He's going to stay several months, and so he, brought, he wanted to take his car with him, so he had his Rolls-Royce crated up and shipped to America. So he's in America celebrating his holiday, and he's driving, and his, his Rolls-Royce breaks down, so he picks up the phone and he calls the factory. And he says, my Rolls-Royce broke down, and I want it fixed. And they said, no problem, we'll have a mechanic there in 48 hours, and we'll get it fixed. So they fly a mechanic to America. The guy had a lot of clout, I guess, I'm not sure. They fly a mechanic to America, he brings parts with him, he fixes the car. And so this wealthy man spends the rest of his vacation driving his Rolls-Royce around. He goes back to England, packs the car up, gets there. There's no bill for him. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits, no bill. So finally he writes a letter to the, to the manufacturers, to the dealer, the Rolls-Royce dealer, and says, says um, here's my story. I was in America. I telephoned you. You sent a mechanic. Uh, he brought parts. He repaired my car, and the bill must be somewhere in your files, so please send it to me, and I'll pay it. And so Rolls-Royce sent him this letter back saying, we've checked our files, and in the headquarters of Rolls-Royce, there is no such account saying that anything has ever been wrong with that Rolls-Royce anywhere at that time that we could speak of. So he didn't have to pay the bill, and I thought, that's grace, isn't it? But here's, here's what's neat about that story for me. He, he still was willing to say, I need to pay this bill. And Rolls-Royce said, it's taken care of. We don't even know you have a bill. There's no record of it. Folks, that's the cross. We feel this obligation to say, God, I need to pay you back. And he says, no need. There's no record. When you trust Christ, the slate is set clean. Have you trusted him as your Savior? Do you stand accountable before him? Yes, Scripture says that. Are you willing to trust him as Savior? That's up to you. It'll make a difference in eternity. Let's pray together.